This is Elizabeth at Austin Enneagram. And I'm here with my friend Eliza Hook, who is a one and a new fabulous friend. I'm so happy to have her in my life. Um, and this is my first podcast without my partner Lee. So I'm kind of like, I have some feelings. Do you want to talk about those feelings? I know that you're... You would much rather me do that. 100%. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, so no. <laughs> Thanks. Nice try. Um, so anyway, what I kind of thought I'd try <laughs> to do, and I can always pivot if like my you guys are not into it, but I've always wanted to kind of read Helen Palmer, who is one of the great, one of the great Enneagram teachers. And uh, also kind of comes out of the Naranjo uh, teachings and community. So I think it's an, it's an interesting segue to go into after Naranjo. And now that I've been reading it, I feel it feels very familiar to me. So like I, I feel like, when I read Naranjo, it feels very unfamiliar to me, and it feels like... Dark. Yeah, very dark. He's very uh, petty mm-hmm. and uses very um, unusual language. But, I mean, I think there's a big part of me that likes his unusual language. It feels textured to me, probably. Mm-hmm. It's a form like, yes, I'm into this the specificity of his language. Um Helen, I feel like, my guess is, because I studied under Suzanne Stabile, my guess is that Suzanne probably read Helen and um, got, you know, did, I, I, anyway, I just feel more like, I, when I read these chapters, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Um, so, and I thought I'd go along the way we went through Naranjo and just, I'm just going to kind of read parts of the chapter and we'll just chat. Okay. And we're going to just like be conversational and you can interrupt me. And um, I mean, hopefully this will be fun. Hopefully. I know it's not fun. You're, you're not. You're... I'm having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So uh, first paragraph on... On chapter six, which is page 72, if anybody has Helen Palmer's book, which is the Enneagram, Understanding Yourself and the Others in Your Life. Um, Ones were good little girls and boys. Um, They learned to behave properly, to take on responsibility, and most of all, to be correct in the eyes of others. They remember being painfully criticized. And as a result, they learned to monitor themselves severely in order to avoid making mistakes that would come to other people's attention. They quite naturally assume that everyone shares their desire for self-betterment and are often disappointed by what they see as a lapse of moral character in others. So I thought that was kind of a good, just like if you had to do a little synopsis. As a child, they're feeling this way. I think... No, I think as a child they were good little boy and they good little people, let's say. Um, and um, I think throughout this chapter she talks about young ones felt very criticized. Yes. 
And so they develop this thing. But I think she goes on to say, I think the part about assuming that everyone is has this voice and everybody is has this desire for self-betterment, that everybody is idealizing every situation, like that everyone's trying to improve all the uh-huh. time, like you, because you are. Uh-huh. Um, and so when you realize that other people are not doing that, it's just terribly disappointing yes. and probably makes you mad. Well, one's in their anger as a whole situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, she talks about that a lot. Um, So she goes on to say, ones are convinced that life is hard Mm -hmm. and ease must be earned, Mm -hmm. that virtue is its own reward, Mm -hmm. and that pleasure should be postponed until everything else gets done. I agree. Yeah. (laughs) With that. Yeah. Yes. Um, Perfectionists are usually not aware that they deny themselves pleasure. They are so preoccupied with what they should do and what must be done that they rarely ask themselves what they want to get out of their life. And I think that is really, really important to me. I feel like it's kind of like one sublimate their desires, right? And they have this inner critic. And I think between those two things, the resentment, comes out of out of those mm-hmm. those places yes yeah um do you do you feel like you're aware that you um are sublimating your desires that you or that you're not sure you even have them or know what they are or uh, yeah absolutely um but the urge to get things done and do what I should and must do far outweighs like my wanting to have fun. Cause I do want to have fun. I've worked really hard mm-hmm. on allowing myself to have fun, but it's a practice for me. It's not, does not come natural to me mm-hmm. at all. Like mm-hmm. I'm driven by duty yeah, rather than pleasure. Yeah. And I do in general feel like life is hard mm-hmm. and sometimes not, but mostly hard. Yeah. It's really painful. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I see a lot of people, having freedom around me that I envy just in just for instance like crying mm. I envy people that can just cry it feels free wow it feels like almost a pleasure to be able to just cry that's, that's so interesting because I don't have that ability really no so when I first got with my wife um Tara Rose one of the things that drew me to her was that she cries easily. Mm-hmm. Um, not in a healthy way, just in like a connection way yeah. with people. She's open. She's open uh-huh. And I almost wanted to videotape it mm-hmm. because I loved it so much. Um, and I wanted that. I still don't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, crying even feels like pleasure that I deny myself. And now there's all this science around the toxicity of tears and how there literally is toxins that are flowing yes. out of you, and that you're re- you're really like it's important to cry mm-hmm. for your own health. Yes, which I think is fascinating. And I feel like I understand that, but I cannot. I'm so tightly wound. Like people say, "Oh, Eliza, you're so easygoing. You're so even killed. They have mm-hmm. no idea that I'm. You're making sure sewn. you are even killed. Yes, yeah. that I'm very tightly wound on the inside, mm-hmm. and sometimes a hurricane on the inside. My mm-hmm. internal world is gigantic compared to what others think 
of me and what I present, which is also me, mm-hmm. but it's a very like controlled me. Yeah. To feel safe. Yes. I've never heard anyone say that about tears. Like Nathaniel, who's a five, doesn't cry either. I think about it so often. I, I, I mean, I don't even think he's capable of crying. Like I've never, ever seen him cry. When Tara sees me cry, she is just, she drops whatever she's doing because mm-hmm. something is major. Something is majorly happening. Yes. And she's like, this is a big historic life event if you were crying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because she, I really do wish that I could. Mm-hmm. It's a constant daily desire that I have That's that I can't allow myself to do. I'm kind of the opposite. I'm trying to like keep myself from crying because I... Same with Tara Rose. Yeah, like I'm just a cry machine. Uh-huh. But I actually I have gotten where I kind of cry a lot less because I'm aware of um, that moment where I can decide mm-hmm. to to not be emotional about something. Um, but you're which, a force. I don't know how you do that. I am like, I don't know. The way I talk about it is I'm just tapping into my three. And I don't know if that's like accurate even but it feels it feels accurate to me that I'm just like also I'm being trained by my daughter who's a three so she's uh-huh. just like it's a choice every time and also maybe I'm just realizing a little bit maybe through meditation that it's not um, mm, maybe I'm finding a little relief in um seeing all the feelings and thoughts as just this thing on a quilt or on a mirror and mm-hmm. that I don't have to like seize it. I don't have to grab it. It doesn't have to be mine. I don't have to have the feeling or thought, you know. We're getting sidetracked, Eliza Hook. <laughs> okay. Um, so then she goes on to talk about the, the inner critic or the voice. Um, one say that they live with the kind of severe internal critic that most of us would experience only if we had committed a serious crime. Mm -hmm. They commonly experience a judging voice as part of their own thinking, and although they know that the voice originates within themselves, it can be as invasive as if it had an external source. Does that feel true? Yes. So I was nervous about you bringing up the critical voice today. Mm -hmm. I was um, thinking on the way over here, I was thinking... I really don't want to talk about that because I remember clearly when I was, it was confirmed that I was a one mm-hmm. for myself. And I, I think I've told you I had to pull over on the side of the road. I was sweating and just like horrified that yeah. I was a one, which I feel like most ones are horrified by their oneness. Mm-hmm. But the critical voice, which has been with me my whole life, it feels like my friend, like, exactly. like someone that I know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you live in, there's a saying, like, if you live in darkness for so long, you start to prefer it. So, mm. like, I don't know that I would prefer life without it because I've never, for a one to give up something they've always known mm-hmm. is really challenging. So I think the critical voice is probably one of the hardest things for me to talk about because it's such a private relationship. Mm-hmm. It's like you're, it's like you're... It's secret my, friend. It's my first intimate relationship. Oh, I love that. You know? So yeah. um, I think the common thing, my wife, Tara Rose, is always saying, like, you know, your tone is absolute shit. Like, you just say things horribly. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't, I can't. 
And I think that it's been repeated before about ones like, we don't know that our tone sucks because the voice in our head is so much worse that we feel like our delivery is soft and kind and nice, right? Yeah, Yeah. and I think, I wonder if it's like, um, you know, we all normalize what we've been born into and what we're raised with and our family structures and the way our parents talk to us and all those things. And so I'm guessing that ones normalize the tone of their inner critic because it is, as you said, your first intimate relationship. So it's your best friend, it's your secret friend, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it. And the way that friend talks to you is feels normal. It feels yes. right. It feels normal. And so probably steeped in the waters of that, mm-hmm. it's very hard to see the range of other ways one could communicate, you know? Yes. Um, so, I mean, like, the thing Suzanne used to always say is that ones just need to realize that that, it's, that, the vo- that, that friend is wrong but most of the time. You feel like it's she, whatever. Your voice is right then, sometimes? Um, I feel like my voice challenges me to be better, but mm-hmm. I feel like that's maybe fucked up. I don't... It's hard to explain. So until I got clean and sober, I really had quite a lonely life. Mm -hmm. Like I was a lonely child. Mm -hmm. Um, I had people around me, but I was very lonely. I've been lonely most of my life. Mm -hmm. And so um, like not really having people that truly saw me or cared about me. Mm -hmm. Um, I was always trying to do things to get their attention, but they never paid attention. Like I would win art shows. I would win science fairs. Mm-hmm. I was just, you know, all these different things. And I can't remember anyone ever caring. Yeah. So I was trying to be good to get attention, and it right? Wasn't working. So I was very lonely. And this inner critic was like, I mean, I would have full conversations. Maybe that sounds weird. No, but, not at all. And I had an identical twin sister who is mm. like the complete opposite personality than me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like very social, very outgoing, mm-hmm. you know, kind of wild. And I was a very reserved, quiet, very, very quiet child. I think it must be really interesting to be a one with a first intimate relationship with an inner critic and also have an identical twin yes. who's completely different in completely personality. Completely different That's in personality. So, what a little triangle of funk that must be, right? Yes. And, and you know, she has a lot of guilt now about not protecting me more mm-hmm. as a child. Mm. But I have a lot of guilt about, because I feel like we both back and forth we're trying to protect each other mm-hmm. but like whatever her reality is around like her trying to protect me I never tell her my side of the story because it was really me trying to protect her but she really needs to feel like she protected me more as a kid so I just allow her to have that uh-huh. um, and she would probably be super pissed if she heard if me she say heard that <laughs> um, well I mean so what do you yeah can you elaborate more on that like what do you mean like that she needed to so for example she always likes to tell this story about um, we grew up in kind of a in a pretty hard childhood mm-hmm. with difficult parents and um, I don't want to malign people that I can't explain the whole story to you know on a podcast but my parents were not great mm-hmm. and um, we shared a bed and we were poor and um, 
in the middle of the night, if I had to use the restroom, I would wake her up and insist that she goes with me. Mm-hmm. And she would always have to go with me to the bathroom. And her, her version of that is that I was scared to go to the bathroom. So she would accompany me to the bathroom. Yeah. My version of that is that I never wanted to leave her by herself. Oh, how interesting. So I would make her come with me so that, so, so that I was with her. Okay. And what were you afraid of? Other, th- other than, like, I mean, you didn't want to leave her by herself because? Um, just because our, it was, you Didn't know, feel safe. Didn't feel safe to do so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I've never corrected her, and that, and that's probably my good, like, wanting to be good. Like, it feels like mm-hmm. I'm giving something to her mm-hmm. by allowing her to and I mean, have I'm one- that narrative. And I'm wondering, like, it's almost like a, there's a double goodness there that you can feel you can feel good that your motives were to take care of her and keep her safe and your motives are to let her believe what she wants right so you're you're like you know you're like you're giving yourself some you know you're that's those are beliefs that make that probably help make you feel good Right, which is a yeah. challenge because I'm a one, so I want to be right, so I want yeah. to correct her. Yeah, you know, yeah. Be like, no, actually, <laughs> the real fucking story is this. Mm-hmm. But I, why? Yeah, it would be. Yeah, it would be like heartbreaking for her because mm-hmm. she she's five minutes older. She considers herself my big twin, mm-hmm. and so I just let her big sister me. Yeah, because it feels like why yeah. not? Yeah, but it was takes effort for me to do that because I want to correct her and be like, no, re- this is reality. Yeah, yeah. But I don't want to also mess with her reality mm-hmm. in case she's not ready to process that. Okay. That's, I mean, that's 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 big of you. I mean, don't you think? That's like, did, did you have to fight for that? Like, did you have I mean, to I find that? I mean, I definitely had to process it in therapy, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um... So uh, the childhood fear of criticism has called, caused ones to develop an internal surveillance system that automatically monitors thought, word, and deed. Ones associate their exacting inner critic with a part of themselves that is higher or better than their ordinary <laughs> thoughts. And even though they realize that the inner critic originates within their own thinking, there's a tendency to listen to the righteous internal commentary as if it had its origin in some higher plane of existence um does that does that feel true i mean like do you i mean i think it's related to like is is the voice right or wrong and i guess what helen is saying that there's some side of ones that think their voice is correct that they think it's moral that it's exacting it's Right? I think the voice is right about me and possibly wrong about others sometimes. It's probably wrong about you. I know, but I don't. Yeah. I understand in my yeah. brain that mm-hmm. that's probably true, but that's not how I feel. I feel like the voice is right about me, mm-hmm. which at its base it probably leaves me feeling like, you know, the a scum of the earth, like a big piece of shit a mm-hmm. lot of times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think a lot of ones probably feel like a fraud walking around because people are like oh you're so kind you're so good you're all these things but on the inside I don't necessarily feel that way yeah you have that hurricane inside that you yeah and saying. I feel like I'm just like even doing this podcast right here I'm like I'm gonna fuck it up you know yeah. because I hope so you hope I fuck it up please fuck <laughs> it up 
please look it up. It'll be much more interesting. <laughs> I, I mean, the truth is, is that I'm not a very kind person to myself. Right. I am, I am genuine in my kindness towards others. Mm-hmm. I am also very critical of others. Mm-hmm. Um, I keep a lot of that criticism to myself now. Mm-hmm. I've learned how to like, you know, Nip it. keep my mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like it's my job sometimes to be like, hey, you know, you've done this wrong or this wrong or yeah. this wrong. But really like my projections on, you should be doing this. I want you to do this. You should, 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 should. It's just really a projection from myself. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, that's definitely true for me as well. It's probably, we could go through every number's relationship with other people and how Mm -hmm. it's really just um, whatever they're battling, you know. Um, Yeah. I mean, I had a friend take me to lunch one time and ask me, what had happened to me as a child to make me this way? <laughs> and I was like, really angry, actually, uh-huh. that she said that to me. But I think about it a lot. Um, Just that question or what made you this way? Both. But what was the answer? Well, um, I'm blanking out. Like, what, what were we talking about? We are talking about your critic and... Putting it on, oh, just, yeah, that basically any relationship issues I have are me off-gassing what I'm trying to not feel inside myself or Mm -hmm. not deal with. So I'm guessing, and that's all like shame stuff. Shame. But I'm sure you, I'm sure one's. um, Shame is a real bitch. mm -hmm. So I'm sure one's really feel that way, that like. And, and she goes on to talk about that. We'll get to that. And I think it's really good. She, it's like a red flag for one. It's like catching those moments yeah. where you're off-gassing on, onto people. Um, resentment, which is a big thing we talk <sighs> about with ones. Anger, resentment. They develop a deep resentment toward those who appear to be breaking the rules without any evidence of remorse. <laughs> <laughs> which kind of goes back to what you are saying earlier. Um, I think that's... I think that's super true. I feel that from ones that I know. I, f- I feel that like when they're observing people who have access to what they don't feel they have access to, they get resentful. Or like when people have access to things that they don't deserve. Ah, yeah. See, I would never even, I wouldn't even phrase it that way because I can't, I don't, I don't have access to talking like that. You know what I mean? Like that's a very, you like know, my having, mind, my, 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 go ahead. No, no, no. I'm like, I'm, that's why I love having you here. I mean, my mind works in like a very like justice oriented mm-hmm. sort of frame of mind. I feel like there's baseline courtesy. There's baseline rules. Like, I am a rule follower, which is surprising for people given my life history mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of not following rules for a very long time. But I was high. Yeah. Like, I was on drugs. So, yeah. like, that gave me a lot of freedom to not follow rules. Right, you know? right. But now that, like, now that I'm clean, and I've been clean for a long time, um, I am a staunch rule follower mm-hmm. out of, like, fear and also, like, wanting to be respectful. And my wife is not a rule follower. Like, yeah. At all. Yeah. She loves, like, just, like, she's kind of an anarchist, honestly. Yeah. Um, She's wild. So it's good. That's good. It's really good for me. Yeah. I mean, it's stressful also. Yeah. But (laughs) um, 
I just have a hard time with people that are irresponsible with their privilege Mm -hmm. and um, just get away with terrible behavior Mm -hmm. because of their privilege Mm -hmm. or out of like people being afraid to call them out. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just kind of want everyone to get what they deserve. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, not that I feel like I deserve much because I don't. It's like, but I think I think those things are linked. So I think if you could somehow, like, if a one could really internalize that they deserve everything um, and that they're worthy of everything, if they could, like, see, you're you're shaking I, your head because you don't. Think I will that's, never feel. You'll like, never. Feel I cannot that way. even imagine feeling like that. Like, that's well, an impossibility in my brain. Yeah. Because it would feel, like, irresponsible for me to feel like I deserve that. Well, I think there's a lot to, to work on there. I mean, I've, don't you? I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm working I daily. Think, on, I think also, I mean, I, maybe it's tricky territory, but I'm wondering if, if in some ways... Uh, very correct and righteous and worthy things to like justice and privilege are things that you can uh, use as unassailable tools um, to continue um, not living in your own like feeling your own worthiness and allowing that to spill out onto other people's worthiness. Like, you know, if like I think there are places where ones can do justice work, which you have done in your mm-hmm. life. And I think there's places where ones can use justice work as a almost like a hammer. Like like not a like a crutch or a hammer or what do you mean? I'm not quite understanding. Well, it's a it's almost as you're pun- you like an indictment on others. Yeah, you get to punish people. It's a judgment. It's you get to punish people in a righteous way. Well, yeah, ones and their like righteousness mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all of that is a whole thing yeah. as well. And 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 it's kind of unassailable. Like nobody can give a one grief for for being a justice warrior. You know what I mean? It's a, it's kind of a safe place to put the resentment. Is all yeah, I'm and it can also yeah. be kind of a cop out at times. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what you're saying. Yeah, maybe so. Because I, I, I really do try to divert the attention away from me as much as possible, mm-hmm. which is why this is so overwhelmingly uncomfortable to be doing <laughs> this with you. <laughs> I'm sweating profusely. Oh just my so god! You know. Do you want me to turn the no, heat no, up? No, it's no. Okay. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm gonna sweat even if it was like 20 degrees in here. Okay. Well, it's um. It's, uh, as I was saying to you earlier, it's like getting a one on a podcast is an honor because it's so, it's really hard for you guys. Yes. And I don't, you know, um, I value our friendship and mm-hmm. I felt safe to do this with you, but it's an honor, it's um, an honor, truly. It is like literally the last thing on earth that I would probably ever imagine as something I would want to do. I'm so sorry talking no don't apologize I agreed to be here this is good this is a good practice for a one okay okay that's right? interesting that's an interesting this idea. is growth for me okay that's good I like it you're helping me by 
I mean, I did, I think, when you texted me and asked me to do this, I think I texted back, you have no idea how long I just sat here and stared at this at text. This text, yeah. And I think I was like, this motherfucker, like. Oh, man. Oh, man. I but then I was like, why not? You know, I'm, I don't. Because the truth is, is, like, I do not want to be a one at all. Like, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's not. Um, now that I know more about it, like, I really want to try to do things that challenge my oneness on a mm-hmm. daily basis. And I feel like I've, this is one of those things. Mm-hmm. So. Um, well, I've, I've been enjoying, like, you know, our times together at the, you know, at our little salons or whatever mm-hmm. we want to call it. And I think you bring a lot to the group. So I, I, I appreciate your insights. That's why I thought you'd be so good on this podcast. Um, anyway, so let's see. Um, there's no mental space left for their own real wishes to emerge into Mm -hmm. awareness. Mm -hmm. They are therefore resentful. Um, resentment could be defined as the degree of difference between forgotten real desires and the compulsion to work hard in order to satisfy the mental critic's demands. Yes. I think that's a really good sentence. That is basically describing my life. Yeah. There's Wendell. I don't know that I could explain that better. Yeah. How she said it. Yeah, let's read. I'm going to read it again. Resentment could be defined as the degree of difference between forgotten real desires and the compulsion to work hard in order to satisfy the mental critic's demands. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think... The more I, like, read this chapter of Helen's, the more I feel that desire is a huge, huge piece for ones mm-hmm. and that any kind of work or practices around knowing what your true desires are mm-hmm. and working on fulfilling those desires mm-hmm. and receiving mm-hmm. pleasure and desires mm-hmm. um, is spiritual work for a one. Yes. And... Like that, I mean, so maybe, maybe it, maybe it's tough to be a one, but at least your work is that. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I mean, I think it's right. It's it's, as hard for you to get there as it is for me to get to like, you know, my stuff, but golly, that's good homework though. Like a seven, a seven, a seven would love that homework. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I, I. Thankfully and luxuriously, and and um, am in therapy. It's such a privilege to be able to be in therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, am discussing these actual mm-hmm. things, um, and I just my therapist. Uh, she just asked me what I would rather be doing than what I'm doing, and mm-hmm. I was like, honest, "You mean in your life, like your job? In my life, like on a daily basis, mm-hmm. what am I denying myself?" from doing mm-hmm. um, and honestly it's very like simple like I just kind of want to make things all the time mm-hmm. like the thing that I imagine doing all the time is just making things tinkering and making things yes. that don't have like a work purpose that don't have a money making purpose I just want to like make things Yeah, and I've done that my whole life I've made things my entire life mm-hmm. um and I just don't allow myself time to do that. Yeah. And it's my number one daydream. It's the thing I think about the most is just making things. 
mm-hmm. which is like if you know everyone's like if I win the lottery, mm-hmm. if I win the lottery, all I'm gonna do is just make things. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Um, and that is where my pleasure lies. Same here. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful. It's a beautiful space to make something um, that no one asks for and no yeah. one needs. Yeah. And um, that that can feel like a real privilege, but that can also be, um, if you lean too much into um, mm-hmm. the privilege of that, then you lose the uh, the playful space to do it. Mm-hmm. You have to have, there has to be a great deal of permission. Yes. Privilege can be a very, very, Tricky. it can be an enemy to creativity in that sense. And um, yes. everybody, uh, everybody has to, um, I think try to see making and creativity as um, not a privilege, but as a a right and um, a spiritual uh, right, you know. Yeah, I definitely feel like every you know there's basic human rights, but I am of the belief that one of those basic human rights should be that everyone should have the right to engage their interest. Mm, that's good. Which is not something that we have, especially in this country Mm. um there's because of lack of access Mm -hmm. you know but i feel for me it's the constant uh battle of feeling irresponsible if i'm playful right that's what i'm saying playfulness feels irresponsible to me right and that's um that is a that's a dangerous thought um, as an artist yeah um but the urge remains at all times yeah yeah, but I don't allow myself. It's almost like a pun. Like I punish myself because I feel so much responsibility to take care of all these other things. So I just daydream. Yeah. Okay, so I was listening to one of my favorite pet podcasts is Helga. Mm-hmm. Um, she has really slow, slow beautiful conversations with people um and when i to drop into her conversation is to drop into a place that this world does not allow you to drop into very much and so i'm so grateful to her for that space um but she was interviewing carrie may weems who i love and carrie may said about her art practice within seriousness there is little room for play. But within play, there is tremendous room for seriousness. And so Mm. I don't know if that helps you, but it helps me a lot because I think um, when we feel that we're not allowed to play, Mm. then everything gets very serious and seriousness kills many, many. It can kill even good things. You know. Yes. And I so, do. so I think, like, to I think it's really important for uh, our being hard on ourselves to see play is not something that we have to fight as irresponsible or as privilege, but as a an absolute spiritual gateway to all things being serious, like properly serious. You know, like that the seriousness of anything worthy comes out of play and not the other way around. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'd love that.
I love Carrie Mae Weems. I mean, I'm going to think about that. Yeah. I'll I did I did want to say one thing before I forget. Like, mm-hmm. so we're talking about play mm-hmm. and my denial of play for myself mm-hmm. and feeling irresponsible mm-hmm. and privilege mm-hmm. and all of those things. But for me, and I, I don't know if this is just um, the circumstance of my life or the way that I was raised, um, you know, it's weird for me to say on a podcast, but my life was rather hard mm-hmm. and... Um, I feel like also for me in my oneness, I also view grief as a privilege Mm. and I view anger as a privilege. Yes. That's, that's how I view all of these things, like these things that I need to feel as a one to be like a healthier person, um, in a, in a healthy way. Like I need to feel anger in a healthy way. I need to feel grief in a healthy way. All these things. I feel like it's a privilege to do those things. And I think that is um, a, the, a source of resentment. Oh, yes. So I think that it feels correct to say that all these things are privilege and that, that there is a righteousness to, to not having grief, not having play, not having anger. But in denying those things, you're you're building the resentment, which then creates more of a problem for more you. Of but all of it. More of all of it. More so, of all of it. Yeah. And yeah. And I resent we, myself the most though. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. And I think honestly we all do, if we're honest. I project that resentment onto others. Yes, so do I. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is gross. Yeah, it's so gross. And um, that's, I mean, honestly, that's why I like um, Enneagram as a tool in my life because it just helps me catch myself doing Mm -hmm. it and then immediately saying, oh, ha, look at you doing that. It just is a... I feel like Enneagram helps everyone just start to catch themselves. To catch themselves. Like repatterning new neural pathways, which mm-hmm. takes so much time. Yeah. It's a riverbed, right? It's so a, yes. It's a grooved out riverbed. <laughs> yes. And we're just trying to create new patterns and mm-hmm. push water back up that hill. You yeah. Know? That's good. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a, it's kind of just a sh- shortcut map to that, mm-hmm. which is helpful. I think we need all the help we can get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she goes on to talk about ones in time and like time is scheduled and blocked out. Mm-hmm. With all the necessary ingredients for mm-hmm. a perfectly balanced life, the music hour, the exercise period, uh-huh. the visit to a sick friend, the block uh-huh. of study time. Time is controlled by the slots of an appointment book, you know, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. So there's a real um, sense of perfectionism around that. And that's like, and of course, y'all are doing dominant. So that's where you really see that. And it's like, mm-hmm allotting your time in this way, organizing it this way, and keeping yourself on task, doing all, A, perfecting everything, and B, doing the virtuous work Mm -hmm. of visiting the sick friend and all these things that get to be on your time slot because they're Mm -hmm. worthy, you know, they're uh, virtuous. Mm -hmm. Um, That just, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just... uh, it's just vi- that's like using doing, which is your dominant mm-hmm. energy, to kind of, you know, I think waylay the voice and try to placate that critic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a constant placating. Yeah, 
Yes. Um, the perfectionist worldview stems from an assumption that there is one ultimately correct solution to every situation. Do you think that's true? Can you read that again? Because I just sort of black—I just sort of blacked you out blacked when you out. said that. I was like, "Whoa!" Uh, I know it's a lot. And and I was as I was saying to you earlier, like we can just do what we can do today, and like when we get tired, we can just stop. No, it's fine. I'm yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. The perfectionist worldview stems from an assumption that there is one ultimately correct solution for every situation. <laughs> Okay. I'm, I well, shouldn't yeah, laugh. But. Yeah, you know, laugh. We should be <laughs> laughing. Life is absurd. Um, so I think I've discussed with you, like, the only way that I can, like, exist in the world because of my technical perfectionism and wanting everything. Like, you know, it. some people might view it as OCD. Mm-hmm. But, like, even when I open my silverware drawer, mm. I have to make sure all the silverware is, like, towards the edge. Yeah, yeah. It's... yeah. Like that, it doesn't, I don't like, I can't move on. I can move on to other things if I haven't done that, but I'm like, I will always stop and straighten all yeah. the silverware. Yeah. You know, but, um, is, I, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but I think I've said the term to you, the wabu-sabi, mm-hmm. which is the per- perfect imperfection. Mm-hmm. In, yeah. It's like the Japanese art of like yes. putting, so putting if I can view broken something things back as together. Like, imperfection can sometimes be perfect mm-hmm. in the way that it's meant to be mm-hmm. that allows me some freedom because yes. you know I'm a mason and a welder mm-hmm. and all these things so like I'm laying bricks and I'm welding and like for someone in my brain that can be very difficult sometimes yeah like, uh because why why in particular do you, I cuz I have to say as a new welder and as a kind of a novice welder I, you can just call yourself a welder. No, no. You're a welder. Okay, well, what I like about it is that it's not one perfect way to do it. That it's right. like very, uh, it's like using flame glue, you know, mm-hmm. and no matter how you're... <laughs> it is flame glue. It's That's like true. flame glue, and no matter how the flame glue holds the thing together, it may, it may not look good or it may be a little awkward, but that, man, you just flame glued that stuff together. And no yeah. matter what it looks like, it's going to work. And now you have a structure. And now you have a and structure and you can something. stand on it. Yes. <laughs> you can climb it. And you can always use a grinder. Yeah. You can always use a grinder. <laughs> so I guess that's what I'm, why I'm asking. Because to me, it seems like a really... I mean, so my question to you is, as a welder, does it seem like there's one way to weld it? Or like a... No. No. For me, yes, no. one way. Okay. Like, I know what... When you've hit that perfect weld before and you know what, what that is, what that is, you're yeah. always seeking that. Okay. But I think it's down to like math and measurements for mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. in masonry and and uh, welding. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to work for a man in the Northeast doing um, concrete foundations, mm-hmm. which is basically we built concrete houses in the ground because mm-hmm. the Northeast has basements. And he was like, anything under an eighth, don't worry about. Mm-hmm. And I was like, an eighth is quite a lot, mm-hmm. but it's not really. Mm-hmm. So I sort of will approach things. Sometimes an eighth makes a huge difference mm-hmm. and I'll correct it. But anything under an eighth, I'll be like, I can't chase that all day. I just yeah. can't chase that. Okay. So it, but it gave you a cap right. for your but perfectionism. It's, you know, it's a de- like I have to debate myself about it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Totally. Like with bricks and things, you're never going to get them perfect. Right. So there's, it's a constant battle, mm-hmm. honestly. 
Well, I guess art in general, whether we're talking about bricks, welding, or... It's all art. It's all uh, sculptural. It's all art. It's all sculpture. All of that is good for ones, I think. Don't, I mean, because it's... You can't... A, it's messy, and B, you're making it for no purpose. Right. Yeah. And those are good. Those are good exercises for a one, right. for anybody, but for one, I think that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um... So time scheduled, correct solution to everything. A one's judgments usually center upon anger and sexuality because those impulses were punished in childhood. Mm. They do not usually know when they are angry. A red-faced and actively critical one can be unaware that her anger is radiating throughout a discussion Mm -hmm. and may leave the interaction believing only that a few important points were made. (laughs) I think that's hilarious, actually. Uh, (laughs) Only a few few important points were made. I was not red-faced and angry. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So are we discussing that now? So I think... Yeah, I think it's really, I think a big thing is that children, one children, as they felt that anger was wrong, morally wrong, that sex was wrong in one way or another. And those two things I think are huge. And I think ones try to suppress their anger they try to deny that they have anger. They have trouble recognizing that they are angry. Mm-hmm. They are very good at seeing other people's anger. Mm-hmm. They're very good at telling other people they shouldn't be angry. But meanwhile, they are often angry. Mm-hmm. We're <laughs> so, the angriest. Yeah. So I just think all of that's like Well, major. you know, in the spirit of just vulnerability and honesty, um, <laughs> It's the number one thing I talk about in therapy. Mm-hmm. My therapist is trying to create, help me create a space in which I can feel appropriately angry. Mm-hmm. Um, she thinks that I have a right to be very angry. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like I can express that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I... Um, can see her point but but in my mind <laughs> anger is a like third emotion mm-hmm. it feels, what do you mean it feels that? like the easier emotion yeah because i'm afraid if i allow myself to feel angry then i have to deal with my shame right which is a thing i don't actually want to deal with right it's a, i've my, heard people say that whenever you're mad just right underneath that is sad or something fear Maybe. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Which shame encompasses. Yeah, right. Um, but I think my shame and just about how I exist in the world and the messages I received as a young person, um, it's shame that is the thing that I avoid. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I allow myself to feel angry, then I have to confront why, why I feel ashamed. Yeah, because I have every right to be angry at my parents mm-hmm. and adults around me who were supposed to protect me, who did not. Right. Um, and I guess it's like probably important to discuss on the podcast for context is that I'm, you know, 
gender non-conforming queer person who grew up in a very, very small rural town in Arkansas Mm -hmm. (laughs) with like, you know, so just for context, like how I I exist in the world was not okay. Right. Um, and I didn't even have any reference for what I was. I had, I had to be told what I was, which was deviant. That's what was said to you. Absolutely. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I got out of there as soon as I could, but you know, I think that's where my sister, where I allow my sister to feel like she protected me more because she Mm -hmm. recognizes that now that Mm -hmm. my childhood was pretty different from hers in the way that I existed. And, you know, everyone, I'm the introvert in my family. Mm -hmm. Everyone else is pretty extroverted and talkative and chatty and I was very quiet. But I felt like I just was trying to shrink and hide Mm -hmm. to protect myself all the time Mm because it was a dangerous, I felt like it was dangerous uh, to be me. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like I was just kind of, you know, it was like the worst situation for a one child to be in, I think. Yeah, yeah. So um, when I think about being angry, I feel like, yes, I could be angry if I didn't have to deal with the shame mm-hmm. of being who I am. Mm. Which I love myself. You also. love who you are. Yes, I'm, yeah. I, I'm very happy to be queer and, yeah. you know, be... Uh, gender non-conforming and gender queer and all those things. Yeah. Like, I love that about myself. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it can be, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's a strange space to, like, one has fought for and cares for who they have become, mm-hmm. yet can still feel the shame of that child who wasn't able to fight for that yet. Yes. And that can just, that is, it remains potent. Even though, you know, that shame and that, those feelings of that child, um, that, I just think it maintains its potency throughout life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you, it doesn't matter how much, you or I have fought for like who who we're gonna be and what we stand for and what we're into and not into and what how we spend our time and blah blah blah. blah. It um, that that can um, it can it, it can lay you flat. Yes. If somebody uh, takes you back to that space. Exactly. Yeah. Because I feel like if I tap into my anger, I won't be able to control it. Yeah. It feels too big. It feels. Um, probably like there's no end to it right yeah so I just don't allow it to really come out yeah well she definitely gets into this chapter is like that that's kind of the best therapy for a one is that is like safe ways of really tap expressing the anger and that the the energy that flows out the cathartic energy that flows out from a, a release of anger for a one mm-hmm. um, can be very empowering and very uh, can, can allow for a lot of forgiveness if it's in the you know if it's in the right um, mm-hmm. you know if if she says mature I think a mature one but I don't you know I don't know how we would define that but and I think we all have moments of 
I have moments of immaturity every sure. day. Uh, sure. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah. And I don't know what, yeah, I don't even know what it means to have like, um, expressions of anger that get released that are productive versus expressions of anger that get released for, that are not productive. Yeah, but, I don't know that. I don't know yeah, the difference. The I difference. have no practice in that. I mean, I will say um, when I got clean, I started practicing nonviolence mm. purposely because I was raised in a pretty, like, violent world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know... Like, when I think about anger, like, I think, like, my dream would be, if I were able to release it, that I would be able to throw myself on the ground and, like, cry and be raging at the same time. Mm-hmm. And just, like, sort of let it be, like, an earthquake almost. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how it feels like it would be. And yeah. We're so restrained. Like, yeah. we, to imagine a one allowing themselves to do that, I, I, I can't even imagine myself letting go enough to do that maybe that's why people you know i hear people going to um retreats where they get a baseball bat and just beat the shit out of things and i mean in I, get circles. To use a, I get to use a sledgehammer all the time <laughs> yeah I was, in my job i get to use a sledgehammer quite often yeah i feel like in my painting and in my dancing i can mm-hmm. really let some freaky feelings fly that that it, it feels helpful to mm-hmm. me those are good spaces for me um uh, so uh, the sexuality part, did, did you feel like, I mean, I guess you, you're saying yes, you felt that, that was not sexual impulses punished as a child. So you, in particular, growing up mm-hmm. in Arkansas, you felt, um, there was a lot of judgment around that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's putting it mildly. mildly. Yeah. I mean, there's still a lot of judgment around it. Yeah. I still have to, you know, you know what it's like being from mm-hmm. the South and yeah. having to sort of become something else when you go home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we all regress somewhat, but mm-hmm. it's still like not necessarily in a completely safe space. Yeah. And I feel um, that way as a um, straight woman. So I can't, mm-hmm. a straight woman who grew up in the deep South. Mississippi. Yes, Which is I, have, I, I feel that I will, honestly, I think I will be unpacking sexual shame for the rest of my oh, life. Oh, sure. And, um. Well, Christianity and Mississippi, right? Right. So. Yes. And, yeah, and I mean, you know, I'm not a one, I, though I go to it, I have, it's one of my points that I go to in mm-hmm. health. And I do, I do think I have a weird relationship to pleasure. But I, I think that. One thing I was thinking about in preparing to talk talk to you today is like one four sevens of the idealism um, triad. We're all uh, imagining a perfect world. We're all I- imagining an ideal world, mm-hmm. um, and sevens are always trying to kind of like make that happen, and and ones are trying to make that happen. And I think uh, ones are doing it kind of by foregoing pleasure, like denying mm-hmm. pleasure, foregoing pleasure. And I think that, uh, and maybe, and I don't know how you feel about this too. I was going to say as an addict and as a four, I just like used pleasure as this thing that I was always either driving really hard for, like I was like seeking it like a tiger mm-hmm. and feeling entitled to it. Like, 
I'm going to have this pleasure. I'm going to have this pleasure. I'm going to have this pleasure. Like, or I don't deserve any pleasure. I don't deserve any pleasure. I don't deserve any pleasure. And there's kind of two spaces. That's very four crap. Extremes. Very, yeah. And, um, I mean, does that, does any of that resonate with you? Or do you just feel like, do you, well, on the pleasure front, do you feel like you're just kind of on the, I'm going to deny pleasure, I'm going to deny pleasure. Absolutely. And you you don't ever see it, and then I bounce between the two, but I think one's kind of stay in that denying of pleasure Denying of pleasure, unless you And then seven, see, kind of stay in the, I'm going to have it, I'm going to have it, I'm going to have it. pleasure. Yeah. And keep it moving forward all the time. So I kind of like, I don't know, I just thought about that a minute ago, like in the idealism triad, that the, the kind of relationship of pleasure to ones, fours, and sevens is kind of like, it's an that's that could be an interesting conversation right. that we could have. I, I think it's worth noting like sexually as a one, um, my denying of pleasure sexually was uh I mean, I've had lots of sex and, you know, had mm-hmm. sex with many, many people and um not as like a bragging thing, but just to make the point <laughs> is that it, did, uh, it doesn't mean that you didn't pleasure, give it to yourself. Right. No, but yeah. the pleasure part, which I would later discover was actual intimacy. Yeah, exactly. It has nothing to do with the act of sex, sex per se. Not the pleasure yeah. yes. for me. Yes. The connection totally. is the pleasure. Totally. Which I denied myself um, for most of my life. Totally. And I still I still struggle with it. And I don't think it I think it's kind of related to the Carrie Mae Weems thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that in allowing for that deep playfulness with yourself mm-hmm. Um, that's where like sexual joy, intimacy comes from. That's where art comes from. Um, and it's, it's really hard for me to allow myself to, um, play with my own body in that way. Mm -hmm. It feels really, it feels really, it's, I mean, it's like easier for me to dance than it is for me to have sex in a way yeah it's weird and I told Nathaniel I was like I would like one night a week where we have body night Mm -hmm. but there's no sex allowed so it's like we're going to focus on each other's bodies where we know the ground rule is that there's no sex because I because I think I'm agree with you that the intimacy of body touching feels like to me that's where it is Uh like getting emotional thinking about it and when I'm I know that I'm ending up in sex which I think is a stickier place for me Mm -hmm. then that whole beautiful like hallway foreplay whatever you want to call it that Mm -hmm. whole beautiful valley of of body touching Mm -hmm. and body being with bodies gets lost because I can Mm -hmm. see the end of the tunnel and the end of the tunnel is like this problem space Mm -hmm. so I was like can we just like Mm -hmm. close the door of that tunnel and just stay in the hallway I don't know it's like going back to junior high and Catholic school but I I I want to try it I'll let you know how it goes yeah please do (laughs) I mean I mean so yeah so you know for me and I think I've said this to you before like I could just have sex and roll out and make a sandwich and sex was just like, you know, whatever. Yeah. It was just whatever. Yeah. 
But it was the intimacy thing. The intimacy thing is what really nearly broke me, honestly. Yeah. It was very overwhelming. And that's when I stopped performing. Mm. Because sex up to that point was performative. Mm. And it was very, you know, like good at putting on this performance. Mm-hmm. But, and the person that I was having sex with would think that they got something from me and yeah. they got nothing from me. Yes. Yes. Which caused a lot of problems. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was That's definitely. a real power trip. I was yeah. definitely considered an asshole yeah. for a while yeah. because of that mm-hmm. by various women. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, my wife now, like, she's a crier. She has no problems with intimacy. She, there's a real freedom in intimacy sexually. Yeah. When you can just, like, see it all, do it all. Mm -hmm. Because sex is not clean also. No, no. It's a messy, it's It's, a very messy, it's chaos. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a real freedom in that. So that is something that I have learned That's beautiful. Which is, like, a pretty big deal. It's a big deal. That's a really big deal. deal. And I'm glad y'all found each other. Because I think... Yeah, that y'all's different energies really come together nicely there. Yeah, we're very different. Yeah. Very, very, very different. Mm-hmm. She, I, in, in our vows, our vows were, uh, I said, um, you can keep me wild and I'll keep you safe. I love that. Because she's, she's a maniac. Yeah. <laughs> Certified maniac. Yeah. Love it. Um, so then she, so she talks about righteous causes, um, uh, as being kind of a place where you can put your anger. Mm-hmm. And that can be That's you know, true. something you hide behind. Um, then she gets into this whole concept of kind of the divided house, which I think is super interesting. Um, a one lives in a divided house. A critic lives in the upper story. And this critic is largely unaware of the tides of feeling that peri- periodically flood the cellars of the house. If the tide of passion rises sharply, a one is likely to leak off unacceptable feelings by mm-hmm. focusing on someone else's wrongdoing mm-hmm. or by getting drunk or drugged enough to put the internal critic to sleep. Mm-hmm. Binge drinking, episodal rages, or periods of intense sexual activity are ways in which a one can release the pressure that periodically builds from unacknowledged needs. So see, that's what happens to unacknowledged needs. Yeah. I think I just explained that that's what I did. did. You did. And Suzanne always called it the trap door. Mm -hmm. That when one does not acknowledge their needs, they do not acknowledge their pleasure, they do Mm -hmm. not acknowledge their true desires and navigate, I mean, navigate play. I think it's not a good word. Just indulge. No, indulge is not a good word. Just allow play. Allow. Then what happens is they fall they fall through the trap door. And I like how she calls it a divided house and that the critic is upstairs. Uh-huh. I think that's funny. But so what happens is when you deny, 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 then that door opens and it just all falls mm-hmm. down. Yeah. Um, and then and then of course that ends up being very troublesome for one because once you've done that then it just makes the critic bigger and the shame bigger and all the things get bigger and the title yes seller just over floods over even more so yes yeah yeah which is you know why i was an addict for a very long time Mm -hmm. it numbed the critic 
Oh, yeah. Quieted it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And also, like, the particular drugs I was using didn't allow me to, like, really uh, retain. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't ruminate. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> I have to say I totally resonate. Like, you know? Because um, when I got sober, I thought that everything was going to be great and I was not going to oh, go. Oh, no. I thought I was going to go to parties <laughs> and not no. say dumb things. It's horrible. And I wasn't going to lie in bed at night and go, why did I say that oh. to her? And why did I say that? And and I was going to, um, you know, just everything was going to be uh-huh. great. And what happened was I continued to go to parties and say dumb things mm-hmm. and I continued to lay in bed at night and regret everything I said. And But most importantly is... Though I don't have the critic that you have, the I guess I'll just call them my like my inner de- demons or whatever you want to call them. I realized I'd quieted them and they got really loud. So mm-hmm. even more than the mistakes I was making all the time, it was the fact that I could hear little Elizabeth or whatever we mm-hmm. want to call her that I had sh- I had shut her up for a while and she just got and she remains quite boisterous and loud. When you yes. say you have a storm inside you, yes. I have a storm inside me. Yes. As a four, it's di- it's different, but it's um it's I mean, I think you see, I think most people can see four storminess, mm-hmm. you know. I don't know, do you feel that way being married to a four? Do you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um but because also, ones is less evident because you're keeping a lid on it all the time. Oh yeah, yeah even yeah. killed. Yeah. But but also I think you know having grown up in a lot of um, you know just real uncertainty and mm-hmm. having to be hyper vigilant and uh, I think hyper vigilance allows mm-hmm. not allows mm-hmm. like forces you because I don't you know I would like to set down hyper vigilance because I it think no it long, is it exhausting. No, it's exhausting and it no longer serves me. No. It does not serve anybody. I am safe. I am okay. Yes, yes. Um, But I'm able to catch a mood shift, like the tiniest little speck of mood shift. Like, I can catch it. Yes. Um, Because of my hypervigilance, and I feel like a lot of people Mm. who have trauma or Mm. unresolved trauma Mm. or whatever um, are forced to learn how to read rooms very quickly and read people very quickly Mm -hmm. to survive. Yes. And so I feel like with fours... What's difficult at being a one with a four? Yeah, is that fours are like All you know a place. roller coaster. Yeah, unpredictable roller coaster storm. Roller coaster storm because mm-hmm. your mood can shift. Mm-hmm. You're so compelled by like feelings and mm-hmm. processing, mm-hmm. and um, so that lends itself to very interesting days sometimes. I mean, when we get into... So are you saying you have to be hypervigilant to that? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying I would like to be less hypervigilant to that. To that, okay. I would like to allow Tara Rose to just... Do it. Have the undulations without... Without me being... Managing it. Codependent and being like, are you okay? What just happened? Yeah. Yeah. Why did your mood shift? Yeah. It's super tricky because... Like, I've told Nathaniel that that's all I want. Like, just, you can just observe it and not have anything to do with it. Yeah, you don't have to like fix it. 99.9% of the time, all of that undulation has nothing to do with you. Yeah, exactly. And and in the, the rare instance that it does, but you better believe you'll know all you about it. I will verbalize it. the hell out of it. Absolutely. So no need to consider it otherwise. Right. <laughs> and... But then what, what I'll do is I'll watch him not engage because I've told him not to. 
Mm-hmm. And then I, I want, I can catch myself wanting to lure mm-hmm. him in anyway, even though it's not what I want. Yes. And then I'm like, okay, Elizabeth, I just no, set, you just asked for that. You just set him up. I, yeah, I just set him up. Yeah. So, but at least now I'm like learning to be like, there he, there he goes, like letting you have the, all these fluctuations. Just, mm-hmm. just um, continue with your fluctuation and. You can talk to him in 10 minutes. <laughs> right. But for a one, the fluctuations are so hard for me to comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. You got to somehow. so um, hard for me. You got to somehow like deeply depersonalize them. Yeah. Mm. Which I know feels weird. It feels weird. Yeah. And we, and honestly, it's, it's probably, fours need to work on not asking that of people. Um, so the flood in the cellar. I love that. Um. Another way to relieve the you know tension. What's really yeah. interesting. What that just occurred to me. What the flood in the cellar. Like I literally, <laughs> I there was a thing that I used to write in my journal all the time that I felt like I was trying to contain an ocean in a basement. Oh my god! For real. That's, that's amazing. That's literally like I could, I could probably screenshot it for you in my journal. Love it. Like I feel like my life is trying to con- shove an ocean into a basement. Wow, that's. I think that's a good image for one. That's what it feels like. Yeah, I believe that. And you're trying to keep that basement door shut uh-huh. at all times. I'm currently leaking a little yeah, bit. Yeah, leak. Open I it. I am leaking. Open it. Yeah. Open it. And it might be messy, and, and I apologize okay. in advance. That's okay. Um, so another way to relieve the tension of living in a divided house, this, this flooded basement, is through forgiveness. If error can Oof. be admitted, and I think that's the tricky part. If error can be admitted, because that feels like such a, that feels so scary, right? To to realize that you've done something wrong. Then the internal critic recedes, which seems counterintuitive to me. Um, and ones are able to see their own small uh, mistakes in a more forgiving light. The pivotal point in forgiveness is the admission of error without the attached humiliation and punishment that ones are conditioned to expect. They are the most patient and constructive people on the Enneagram when it comes to mending a mistake once they can admit that it is that it has been made. So I think that, you know, I think, I think that, that it's, I've, felt that in ones that I know that they're very patient and very, mm-hmm. very diligent in that whole process of like mending things. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, I think the hard part is realizing where they made the mistake, not in the mending. They're good at mending. It's knowing that something needs to be mended. Yeah. 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 And I think like, how does, how does one, <clears throat> I don't know how you have an admission of error without the attached humiliation and punishment, but I don't know. I don't. I don't know how that happens. I'm trying to stay very present with you while you're talking about this because it's, it's so too, uncomfortable. Yeah. 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 So anytime for me as a one, anytime someone says the word forgiveness and even the word grace, yeah, it makes me start my heart. My heart starts to race into my throat. Like yeah. forgiveness and grace are two words that like really affect me because you probably feel like you don't have any right yeah it's not available to you right and maybe you feel you don't deserve it certainly Hmm. i don't you do 
Well, I feel like if, for me and how I feel as a one, if someone else had done the things that they've done in their lives that I have, I don't know that I could forgive them. Which is all the more reason why that self-forgiveness ends up becoming grace for everybody else. And, you know, the grace for you becomes grace for everyone. But also... And also, you're bound to know on some level that every single one of us have done probably work, like... Ones are so hard on themselves that their per- perception of badness is warped. Right. And their perception of responsibility for said is things is warped. So yeah. I would say that, that my work in this and, and considering giving myself grace and forgiveness in the way that I give others grace and forgiveness because I am able to do that. Um, not so much for my parents as, mm-hmm. as much as others, but... Um, is that it is necessary for me to take responsibility for things that were not my responsibility because it's too terrifying not to. Like, I need to take ownership over, some partial ownership over bad things that have happened to me Mm -hmm. and take responsibility because giving up control or responsibility for something that happened to me feels like really painful um when you say giving up responsibility of something that's happened to you what do you what do you mean exactly so you know having been through some really difficult things Mm -hmm. um and for the sake of like not wanting to trigger people and whatnot I won't get deeply into that but um having to see my role in the bad things that happened to me and having to take responsibility where it where in my head I kind of know that I was either neglected or certain things happened that were not my fault. Right. But I like to take fault. Yes. As a way of like controlling my how, feelings. How about much it, it hurts. How much it hurts and how scary mm. it is. Because mm. I don't think ones ever want to be a victim of something. Mm. I think ones being a victim is like not having control. Right. So, like, I So you just, you're taking all the past. um, Or being a survivor, rather. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So you're, like, not even, you're keeping yourself on the hook. On the hook. For things that were done to you as a child, basically. And And in order to not feel the enormity of the pain of that, that moment. Of having to accept... That this thing happened. Wow. That's fair. That's interesting. That it's I, it's yeah. interesting to think of using your own self as punishment uh-huh. as a way to feel better about it. To feel better about, yeah. Because we're already but used to that feeling of taking responsibility for everything. Everything and yeah. judging ourselves and critiquing yeah. ourselves. That feels familiar. I feel more comfortable. Yeah, but I think in holding yourself on the hook, you're still not releasing it. It's not being released. It's just being managed. Right, which is why saying the word like forgiveness is like a really profound word. It is. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, 
so then she kind of has a, a section called family history, which I kind of think we've gotten into. <laughs> um, behavior by internalizing the parent's critical voice. They felt heavily criticized or punished when they were young. Um, expected to take on adult responsibility mm-hmm. prematurely mm-hmm. in order to stabilize immature adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's, th- that, that's pretty much, that yeah. covers it, yeah. Yeah, and then she kind of goes on to talk about how eventually the pleasure of re- rewards, eventually the pleasure of rewards could be submerged in favor of the pleasure of self-control. Um, so ones actually turn control into a pleasure, but that's an illusion. It feels mm-hmm. like a pleasure, but it's actually just more, it's just control. And control is actually just an illusion. Control's an illusion, and yeah, and I, yes, but I think it's interesting that, like, probably ones should try to catch themselves in those moments where they're controlling everything and they've got everything dialed and how that feels pleasurable, but how the pleasure that you feel in that control is really, it's like a... It's not pleasure. It's just it's re- not pleasure. It's relief. It's, it's like relief and... Yeah, it, yeah it's like the a, anxiety is, quite, is quieted. Yeah, it's like a bad step cousin of yeah. pleasure. It's not a, like pleasure... The deeper pleasure of like understanding your desires and ple- mm-hmm. and living into those is much more like watery. Um, you know, I think it's much it's broader. It's like something you have. It's it's something that you can't bring on for yourself. It just mm-hmm. happens to you because you allow it. You know, um, I don't know. <laughs> Um, the fact is that it feels dreadful to force yourself to be good while others remain oblivious to your sacrifice and efforts. Ugh. Yeah. Well, that was a good sentence. That's So that's a good... That feels a bit gross to me. Yeah, but that's a good sentence about resentment. Yes. I think. That's like, um... Because goodness for wands is baseline. Yeah baseline like everything that's baseline for us is it's so hard for us to understand how others don't have have that baseline yeah right yeah like i don't want to be thanked for doing things that are baseline like yeah i've told her that i'm like don't thank me for baseline behavior that's just that's just like yeah that's just all that's just given right it's given it's given yeah um and also it's kind of like if the standard is that, mm-hmm. then why would anybody need to be thanked right, for that? Right, exactly. Like, that's what it is. Um, ones can therefore become very angry at people who bend the rules, mm-hmm. but they will not speak out unless they feel completely convinced that they are in the right. Does that feel true? Yes. About or the right stuff? Yes. Like if someone's bending the rules and it makes you feel resentful, but it's like you kind of already know that you're feeling resentful about them just kind of over there having fun and it feel you feel like they're being irresponsible and they're having a blast and you feel resentful about it. Do you speak out or do you just kind of seethe? I just sort of seethe. I try to mind my own business as much as possible. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't want to become the target of anybody. Oh. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but also because I just like, I'm older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't have time for it. Yeah. When I was younger, probably I would be more vocal about like, you know, you're yeah. a fucking dick bag or whatever. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> but now I'm just like, you know, it's not my business. Yeah. Do I yeah. want to? Do I want to choose this as a battle? Yeah. Or do I just want to go home? Right. But when it starts to become like consistent harm towards somebody else, mm-hmm. that's when you jump in. Then I might jump in, unless it's unsafe to do so. Yeah. Which is also a reality, but. I mean, I don't know, having been in the social justice world for so long in, in New York, um, I was very vocal. Yeah, every I think it's day. I think it's um I think it's a big part of who you are to um to know about your life in New York as a like how would you how would you describe what you were doing? You were mm-hmm. an advocate? An advocate, for- yes. Uh Anti-incarceration, um, alternative to incarceration advocate. I served girls and young women who were uh, being arrested for various crimes, crimes of being arrested for prostitution and so forth. So young women who, and young men sometimes, trans folks, etc., who were being arrested for being sex workers, or some of them had been trafficked, which are two very different conversations. Right. So um, I was working inside of a system that, in my opinion, is not broken. Um, it's working exactly as it's meant to work. Oh, you mean, yeah, you're saying that the system was set up. Yeah, the system is to, not broken. It's, it's set up. It was intentionally to, set up that way. It's intentionally set up to be this oppressive, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I was an advocate and courts, criminal courts, family courts, Supreme Courts. Mm-hmm. That's the very, very, short, very short of it. Short version. And I um, worked with a lot of people um, in that world mm-hmm. and still am in contact with a bunch of folks. Yeah. But I imagine that was like um I mean, I imagine that you were really amazing at being an advocate and that it was a you know, a good place to put all the all the stuff we're talking about. Yes. You know, where you're actually really helping people who need it the most. Yes. But also, like, as a one, not allowing myself to be as angry as I should have been. Which I did get angry mm-hmm. in that world. But mm-hmm. um, I still have some anger to work out from, mm-hmm. from that. From doing that work, yes. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen a lot of stuff. I feel like sometimes there's not much I haven't seen. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Not as a bragging right. Like, yeah, no, no, no. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Because I know, I, know, I know it may sound shocking because most people are like, I wouldn't trade this for anything. I wouldn't trade my life for anything. I, you know, it got me to where I am. I would absolutely have a different life if I had the choice. Uh, From start to finish. Oh. That's interesting, Liza. Mm-hmm. I mean... I wonder it. I mean, I hear you, and I think I know what you mean about <laughs> about having that those these experiences that that. Hmm. But I also wonder if that's a way of not having grace for yourself and who you are right this minute, like. To say that you would take all that away is to kind of take yourself away in a sense. Well, right. sure. Yeah. So I don't. Obviously, it would so be I to, don't, to I don't, erase myself completely. Yeah. So I don't. I don't know if we can. 
I mean, we have. I you can disagree. I'm. I'm not. I'm not disagree. It's not to me. It's not about agreeing or disagreeing. I just think it's interesting. I, I think we all. I think we can't help but look at the past and have feelings about what we did and didn't do and how. How you know whether we could do that again or not do it again, or, or whether we regret it, we should have done something else. But also think again. There's that should word, and also. Um, it feels because I love to regret things. It's like some uh, some big energy for oh, me, sure. and so I think it's really. I've been thinking a lot about like, in a way, how regret is just kind of a. In some ways, it's a silly activity because it's uh, you regret something you didn't do, but you just didn't do it. I know. I mean, like, I just didn't go, I just didn't get my MFA, or I just didn't go to art school. And, like, to say, oh, I wish I'd gone to art school. Well, I'm surrounded by your painting, so obviously you didn't really need to go to art school. Well, you know what I'm saying. It's like, it it, it has its whole community and, you know, system that I could have tapped into. That's also a social conditioning on placing importance on these things that are also a privilege. Exactly. And not everyone has access to. Which doesn't right. diminish, like, that you are an artist. That's what you have done with your life. You are truly an artist. And no one gets to, like, diminish or negate that because you didn't go to get your Master of Fine Arts or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a social sort of elitist mindset yeah, yeah. that we have, right? Sure. And stuff around mothering, too. I mean, but I guess what I'm saying is, and, like, my friend Chris Cowden is really good at, at, at being like, yeah, but you just... But you just didn't do that. So so what you did choose to do in that moment is like who it informs where you are right now. And you have to like, see, you have to value that. No, see, I disagree. That's what I'm disagreeing with. Yeah. See, I, I think it, I think, I think it's a, that's a, I think it's a way of not loving ourselves though. Probably. Did, yeah. I think so. Probably. Sure. Yeah. I'm, you know, whatever the reason is, I feel this way. I'm sure that's the reason, maybe, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean I don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Like I still feel like, um, as a one, like the critical voice and how I exist in the world. I mean, I've got to be honest. Like being a one is quite painful all yeah. the time. Yeah, every day is a chore. Mm-hmm. Like I wish sometimes that even my wife would understand. Like to get through the day for me is very different than getting through the day for you. Yeah. Um, but I absolutely, if given the chance to start my life over and not have gone through everything that I've gone through in my life, granted, I am grateful to have the understanding of humanity in the way that I do Mm -hmm. based on my lens of the world. Mm -hmm. I find that helpful, Mm -hmm. but if that didn't exist and I were able to go back and do it all again and not go through my life, I would. Hmm. That's yeah. I which don't know. would which would, you know We could have a whole complete, conversation. Which would about completely this. erase certain people's existence. It would erase people's existence. It would erase you and me right now. Yes. It would erase um And I would be willing to do that. And also like, you know, <laughs> we could have a whole conversation about free will or lack thereof. You know, in this whole conversation. Right. You know, so and I don't know. it's not reality. Yeah. It, that can't happen. Right. But I can still daydream about it. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I'm just wondering if the daydreaming about it is like kind of your inner critic just working on you, you know? And it feels... Sure. Like it feels something like something you really should listen to. And maybe maybe it's something you... Uh, I mean, maybe... It, I don't know. I'm just not sure... I guess as a four who ruminates, I'm just realized like I think rumination and what you're talking about are little cousins there. And I just feel like I'm I'm just realizing it's not it's not it's not serving me in any way. Mm-hmm. So, I'm just going to realize that where I'm standing today stands on all that stuff for better for worse, mm-hmm. all the good, the bad, the ugly, the bad choices, the good choices, the things that went wrong, the scary things, etc. And I'm standing on all that today, and that's just that's just what reality is in this mm-hmm. moment. And it's just who I am, and it's part of the soup of who I am, and in this present moment. And how if I come to it that way as opposed to the other way? I mean, like you know, like which one? They but you you could do both, but which one? <laughs> which one is going to work better? I don't know. I don't. I know. don't know. I don't yeah. know. I don't have all the answers. What I, I do either. know is that sometimes the very thing that I feel connects me to humanity also disconnects me. Ooh, that's good. Because, for instance, the thing that maybe you don't know, and so, like, everyone has, every every single person has their own lens of the world, their own environment, totally. nature, nurture, all totally, of those totally. things, which inform um, who we are in the world. Mm-hmm. And I feel like most people don't know that more than half of the time that I'm sitting around in a conversation, there is so much that I'm not saying. Yeah. Because if I do, I'm going to be othered in the room. Hmm. Or because I have a fear of being unique. You have a fear of being unique. I want to be regular and normal. I I know. We're opposites that way. We are opposite. That's so interesting. Like I don't want to be set apart. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be unique. I don't want to have a different sort of story to yours. Um, I want to sit at a table and fit in. That's so interesting. And so there and you are, are... And you are so unique. No. But you are. But don't fucking say that. <laughs> Fuck you. Don't say that. You're one of the most unique no, people. No, no. <laughs> it's terrible. It makes me so nervous. Uh, I just started sweating again. Oh, my gosh. Um, that's fascinating to me. So I, I do censor myself quite often and don't contribute my version of whatever story is being told um, because a lot of times people will never assume that I've been through something that they're talking about right. as like a far I've, off thing that's happened. I've watched, I've watched you do that. Oh, really? I mean, just because I am I'm so, I'm lucky to have been, um, you have told me things about yourself and I feel um, honored by that. And so sometimes I just watch people talk about things that I know you know a lot about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're just very... You know, I, I've always chalked it up as modesty, but now that we've had this I conversation, I've got a an, modest person. But now, now I have, yeah, now I have another lens. Basically. Like I don't think I'm a humble person by any means. I just right. think that I just don't want to be othered or different. Got you. That's very different, which is why it's important to have these conversations about motivation versus mm-hmm. behavior. Um, sh- Helen now gets into this. I think it's an excellent segue because she gets into the concept of invisibility. And I think 
So I have never read this about wands, and I think it's super interesting. It's a, She talks about it as a way of equalizing the pressure of the voice by having a certain public life with rules and procedures and a private life which has forbidden fantasies acted out. Mm-hmm. She goes on to have this... I'm going to kind of read this little story. When I was a kid in New York City, I used to like to go to the different neighborhoods and see if I could pass myself off as Italian, Yiddish... Or an artist. I liked being somebody else because I didn't worry about what people thought of me and could afford to say things that I wouldn't have let myself even think at home. The first time I went to Europe was liberation. Nobody knew me. My parents were far away. The buildings were little stone palaces and the currency looked like monopoly money. While I was traveling, I started to play at being different characters in the same way that I had back in New York. I'd get on the train without a destination and let one of my characters take hold of me until I felt like I was ready to play. Then I'd get off at a town and spend days being someone else. The strongest identities were a jet setter and a whore. As the jet setter, I had a great time meeting people, speaking three languages, and talking about all the places I'd seen. As the whore, I cruised for money, wore stiletto heels and the sleaziest clothes I could find. The turn-on was being invisible. Mm -hmm. And so this is interesting to me because I've never heard anybody talk about one's role-playing. We always talk about three's role-playing. Is she a one? She, this person is a one. Oh, they're telling, a one is telling their a story. A one is okay. telling their story. And so I think that in like what you just said about not wanting to stand out, not wanting to be othered, wanting to be invisible, basically, not wanting to be unique. I actually have a sweatshirt that I wear that's all black with like a darker, like a lighter black, very, very subtly that says invisible. That, oh, that's so funny. <laughs> That's yeah. so funny. A three would try on these different roles in order to fit in. I guess you're saying you want to fit in too. But it's not about invisibility. It's about visibility. They want to have these roles acknowledged. They want them to be seen. Mm-hmm. They want the roles to be like for people to come along and say, well done, good job. I see that. I see that good, successful role you're playing. You're doing a good job at that. Mm-hmm. Whereas you're saying you're like playing at being invisible, and right. this person is playing at being invisible. And I right. think that's, I've just never heard anybody talk about ones in that way. Yeah, I yeah. agree with that. Do you feel like you've ever played roles though? Like, have you tried on things that didn't feel like, you because it was like off gassing the critic. I don't. I don't know if like I'm gonna, a release valve or something. Like, what do you mean? Like, like have I tried to alter my appearance I mean, this pro- or to be a? Di- I so mean, not just being, a- existing in this world. Yeah, feels like a role. <laughs> well, it is. It always is. So Every, everything. I mean, is. I've like done things like grow out my hair and worn makeup just to see if like I like mm. that or if that if I feel like myself. Like that. Mm-hmm. And when I first got clean, I grew my hair very long just to mm-hmm. be like, is do I like this? Mm-hmm. But I feel like, gosh, man, if my therapist heard me talking about all this, she'd be like, because these are all the things I talk about all yeah. the time. Yeah. Is being, existing as multiple people. Okay. Like I exist, I do not merge my worlds. So when I got clean and started my life over mm-hmm. here in Austin... I basically, my mind killed my old self. Okay. And created this new self. Mm -hmm. And was completely in control 
of any information that anyone had about me, which has, like, been beneficial and also, like, fucked me in a way that, like, no one can ever really know me because I don't explain all this other stuff. Yeah. Because I wanted to live a life. My goal was to become someone so different than the way that I was that people would be shocked. It's like to know that I used to be this. Yeah. And And that's maybe the definition of goodness somewhere in there for you. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm not dishonest in how I present myself. Like, you're getting me today. Yeah, yeah. You seem like you're very authentic. Yes, you know. I am being authentic. Yeah. But it is to a point. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not inauthentic. You're just never going to get the full story. Okay. Or, like, my full explanation of why I am the way I am. Because mm-hmm. I killed that person. But really, in actuality, I did not. Yeah. So I'm working on safely Kind of integrating all, your, all yourselves. Yes. Yeah. Because that's not honoring of a massive, massive part of myself. Mm-hmm. Over half of my life. Right. Right. That that's... I don't bring totally into this life that I'm in now. Exactly. Because I want to fit in. And the person that I was before does not fit into this. But, I mean, you don't know that, do you? Sure, I don't know, but in my you mind, right. in my critical voice... I say don't listen to that. I think you can... I think... I would be... I would probably... In my mind, if I, if I allowed the full integration, especially at, like, a dinner party, like, I would probably feel... I would be like, I will never be asked back. <laughs> like, because my experience of the world was very different and mm-hmm. I don't want to be different so I was you know when I arrived to this world and had gotten clean like I didn't really know how to have a bank account I didn't know how to do there were so many things that I never told anyone I didn't know how to do right because I didn't want to be weird and also like, maybe did it feel embarrassing yeah yeah like regular world, you yeah. the square world as I like to call it. Y'all yeah. are all a bunch of squares, right? And, right. Um, I feel proud of my squareness. Like I earned my squareness. Ha 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 ha. I like that. But I still feel like there's a lot of time I have no idea what I'm doing because I wasn't socially conditioned in the same way that everyone else was. A lot of people, mm-hmm. which my very dearest dearest friend Ifua really appreciates about me. But yeah, I would say it's. I mean. That's kind of a gift. Sure. It can, it can be a gift. It is. My, so you might as well see. And you know what I mean? I it guess is you can what say it is. That, so. Sure. But my um, critical voice is not going to allow me to see it that way as a I gift. Mean, I think, yeah, I don't know. So, yes, I, yes. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, map. these are more distinct roles. And you're saying yours are more kind of like parts of your life. Well, no, I, there's an entire person. A whole person back there. That is invisible. It's not coming along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Um, she talks about ones monitoring their thoughts at all time for unacceptable or acceptable content. That you're always kind of saying that's a good thought, that's a bad thought, that's a good thought, that's a bad thought. Mm. Do you feel that way? I don't... An obsession with avoiding badness. Um, I think, I mean, what I wrote out in the margin here is that this kind of monitoring of thought 
is a good way to talk about being thinking repressed because I know that feels tricky, especially to ones who are, uh, you know, there's a lot of investment in being good and um, smart and all these things. And to say you're thinking repressed feels weird probably. It feels insulting. It feels insulting. That's a good word for it. But I think to, to, to what it what it's thinking repression speaks to in this way is like that you're monitoring thought and you're listening to the critic. And so you're like, good thought, bad thought, good thought, bad thought. And that all of your life and all of your actions roll out of that monitoring that the critic is demanding. Mm -hmm. And that is a form of I don't think we have to say repressed. It's just like not productive thought. It's mm-hmm. not free thought. It's like it's not free thought. It's like thought with some real restrictions and some real, um, you know, the horizon is has been limited mm-hmm. there. You know, and um, I mean, I probably don't even know have much experience with really productive thinking. Mm-hmm. Which is just probably a broad, broad landscape that's yeah. just hard to get to. I mean, I can analyze things. I'm very like... Sure. You know, it's hard for me to connect my brain and my heart. Very, right. very difficult to make a connection. Um, because ones, you know, are actually very deep feelers. Yeah, I've really come to realize Super that. Super deep feelers. I've really very appreciate sensitive. that about you, you guys. Um, Super loyal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of warmth there. And once we love you, which mm-hmm. can, you know, take some time to do that. But once, like, we love you, like, it is. It's, it's, it's inscribed it's pretty, in yeah, stone. Yes, yeah, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, it's a good um, feeling. But when I think about productive thought, that's hard because the critical voice is so loud. Um, I think Penny said when I listened to the one podcast, something that was like, oh, you know, that drove the point home that I'm certainly a one, which I had already thought, but she said that I viewed the critical voice as thinking. Exactly. That's that's true. That and still think, remains true. Yeah, that's, and I think that's just another way of saying what we just said, is that, yes. that monitoring is... The critical voice yeah. is our thinking. Yes, yes, yes. And that's why... That's, that's a, a restriction of thought. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, maybe like restriction of thought feels like a good way to talk about about it to me. Um, mm-hmm. There's just a broader landscape of, of broader thought. Um, allowing real wishes to come into awareness can be frightening to those whose childhood security depended upon rigid self-control. Um, I think I just slow blinked you just then. <laughs> I know. Well, I like that sentence because it's something for the ones in my life, I can feel that in my body. Like Mm -hmm. I, I feel ones when I'm at odds with a one, generally it's about this. It's usually they're trying to maintain self-control or rigidity or something in order to feel safe Mm -hmm. because that's what's always worked since they were a child when they didn't feel safe. And so that helps me right there to just calm down and Mm -hmm. say, this is what it's about and you need to 
have a little space for this, some compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it makes me sad. I know. Intimate relationships. Um, a perfectionist's deepest need is to feel loved, even though imperfect. Love has been equated with good behavior in the past, which makes ones feel unlovable if they find imperfection with themselves mm-hmm. and makes it hard for them to believe that a partner could love them as they are. Mm-hmm. Um, monitoring themselves severely in an attempt to keep the shadow hidden with their loved one. Mm-hmm. Um, when the tension level becomes critical, ones start to feel so vulnerable to rejection that they are likely to start judging the partner in self-defense. Yes. Yeah. That's caused a lot of issues in our relationship. Right. And so I think that's like the, that's the armor. Yes. So the intimacy starts to happen and it starts to feel chaotic because of that childhood feeling that we just said. And so, boom, it's much easier to defend than, and to criticize and defend than to, like, yes. just kind of relinquish and mm-hmm. surrender to all of that chaos and unknown that relationships demand. Or, mm-hmm. or I don't know, demand is maybe not the right word, but... I feel like, like I don't really have to extrapolate on that. I feel like that's... That's good. Yeah. Um... And then I think alongside of that, it says, like, so it, your ones do that, but they can also place their partner on a pedestal. Yes. Which is interesting Which side by side. Which is also, like, a super weird, uncomfortable thing to do to people. Yeah. Frankly. Yeah. Like, I have to recognize that, like, me basically worshiping my wife, which I do. Like, she is, like, you know, mm-hmm. she's the most amazing Mm-hmm. human I've ever known um, it makes her uncomfortable she's like just stop like you mm-hmm. worship me and she's like and sometimes I like it mm-hmm. but sometimes I'm just like you know yeah settle settle down <laughs> yeah and I'm guessing that the pedestal and the criticism are related yes yeah I mean, I'm sitting here saying they don't make sense together, but actually I think they probably feed each other. Because if you have someone in well, a pedestal... have such a high expectation yeah. for her. Um, but that must be a really major mindfuck for her. Yeah. To yeah. be criticized by me and worshipped by me. Yeah. Yeah. Because she gets the the most of it, right? Yeah, yeah. As we work together and yeah. we're married. And... Right. Yeah. I mean, bless her heart. Jesus. <laughs> Well, bless yours. Um, oh, I thought this was inter- interesting. On the low side, like like we haven't been discussing. <laughs> we have not been discussing the low side. On the low side, if ones perceive their partner as embarrassing mm. or clearly breaking a rule of behavior, they will become actively angry and unable to recapture the view of the partner as good. That's intense. That is intense, and I have felt that way about Tara Rose before because... It happens. It's inevitable. Well, it's really just around, like, she's a curly redhead from the Boston area. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. she's a, a hothead. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's embarrassing for me is when she gets, like, super angry and spitting fire at people in public. Yeah. That's yeah. embarrassing for me. Yeah. and uh, That's when I reprimand in public. Yeah. And so... I I feel like when I watch 
I mean, I, I feel I relate to that. And so what I do to try to help myself with that is like watch couples who air their laundry thinking that it's cute or that it's um, by doing it in public, it will lessen the impact. Like if I do this publicly, ever it'll get it'll dissipate mm-hmm. somehow. It'll be less extreme. Or if Nathaniel's embarrassing me and I reprimand him at a party, mm-hmm. that that would look good on me when actually it just makes me look like an exactly. asshole. That it makes me it it literally makes everyone in the room go ah Nathaniel's a goofball, but Elizabeth's a dick. You yeah. know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, I so, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. So I say that to myself. Like, I watch him. Like, I watch. Because that's ego. It's just ego. Yeah. He does something, and I'm like, I have a knee-jerk reaction mm-hmm. of that that doesn't reflect well on me. What a, what a silly thing to say. Uh-huh. And then I'm like, God, it's just, it just is. Like, uh-huh. everybody in this room is a big boy and girl, and like, mm-hmm. I don't need to. I don't need yeah, to step into a that grown ass person here, and I don't need to step into that. And it, yeah, it What's only that? makes me look bad to step into it. Yes, mm-hmm. and so like people that know Tara Rose know she's a hothead. Know that she's like in a process in real time, and she's a mm-hmm. bit rough around the edges, and super kind hearted and tender, and all these things. She's mm-hmm. you know just flailing, those wild out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when she has like gotten into a verbal altercation, and mm-hmm. it's usually not with me, mm-hmm. it's usually with someone else. Yeah, I'm there to. I gotta shut it down immediately because I'm like, this is not okay for you to be like this in public. Like, mm. But if you know Tara Rose, like they're way more okay with her doing what she's done, right? Than how I'm reacting to what right. she's done, right? Like I do always become the dick in that situation. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm not. I kind, definitely do too. I'm not nice about it. Yeah, no, I'm not either. And I shouldn't be reprimanding my grown ass wife in public. Right. Period. The only th- the only thing where like I don't know, if I'm processing out loud, but my parents never fought in front of me really, and they were always like quote per you know they always got along and perfect and everything was they were always I used to call them like a um, like a fortified castle, mm-hmm. and so if you were a little kid and and you needed. Uh, the drawbridge to come down so you could find your way into the lap of someone, the the castle was fortified. I'm not saying they I didn't feel love, but if, like, one of them was mad at me, they were both mad mm-hmm. at me in the same exact way. Ooh. So. That's intense. There was no way in. That's really intense. And, and it was scary and to me. So yeah, yeah. Like- so, Super scary to me. So one thing I have decided with Nathaniel, especially with my children, but I've also noticed I do it with my my friends, is that if Nathaniel is mad at Henry or Alabel or a, or, or a friend or he says something to a friend that hurt, I can visibly in the real time see that hurts the friend, I will step into it and say, I might defend the child. I might defend the friend. Because to me it matters that even though we're married, we are two separate people that have, mm-hmm. that there's a, when there's not a way into Nathaniel, there might be a way into me and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And I, I absolutely ask that of him as well, like f- for him to protect people from me. That's a good practice. It is a good practice, it's but chal- I, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, and but do, and, and I'm wondering that? where it rubs up against 
I think it's different than, say, like being embarrassed of your husband at a party because he says something goofy. That's different, where you just shut up and don't, you know, I just, I don't need to step into that. But if he hurts somebody's feelings, you know, then I need to. But for a one, how do we approach that without being critical and being like, you should? I think it has to come, it has to come from the, from a really open heart space where you uh, you are seeing the person. So I'm seeing Alabel and how it affected her, and I start there. Mm-hmm. Or I start with, like, Nathaniel said something glib to my friend Sarah, and I see Sarah, and I show her to him. It's almost like I'm a translator. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then that's never a should. It's well, just a translation. And then, you know what, he always is like, oh, it always kind of works. I'm going to think about that more. That seems like a pretty good practice. I think it is. I don't know that I have I mean, the nat- I, natural ability to do that. But. No, I don't either. I mean, I don't either. I have way too much pride for that. But I, I try to keep it open. Um, she has a whole section. I feel like we're getting really long. So she has a whole c- section on authority. Which we've which we've talked a lot about in our our salons. I mean, we can wrap it up whenever you want. I don't even know how long it's gone, but whatever, whatever. Let's see. As she talks about the comparing mind, um, one's de- one's decision making process carries the image of a courtroom scene. I thought that was funny. Hmm. An opinion is mentally brought into court where it is then attacked, defended, and uh-huh. finally finally judged for correctness. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, she's really dead on. She's dead on. And I was thinking too, like, uh, two threes and fours are all like in the heart trad and they're all have comparing hearts. So I think it's really interesting to think of ones as having a comparing mind. Um, and that's not something like, while everybody in the heart triad seems to share that, I'm not sure everybody in the head triad, in fact, I would... I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say they don't. I mean, I don't think, well, that could be discussed. I was going to say, I don't think a seven has a comparing mind, but I don't know. I have to think about that. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think it's interesting to think about what a comparing mind is versus a comparing heart and what that feels like or looks like. Um, but it gets, us, it, all, it gets us all into trouble for sure. Kind of the last, sort of the last thing I wanted to talk about was um, the fact that you, that ones are idealizers, mm-hmm. as are fours and sevens. Um, and it says, Helen says, ones habitually notice error and what is wrong in any given situation, which implies that they are also aware of a background perception of how perfect that situation could be. Mm-hmm. They recognize the perfected possibility in any given situation because judging thoughts vanish and their bodies feel right. And then this one person she interviewed says, I have moments of wonder during the course of the day. I call them my brief epiphanies, those times when everything comes together and the judge goes away. So I thought that was cool to hear that on the flip side of all this judgment, there are these moments mm-hmm. where you see, 
And that's what I love about like the 147 triangle. We all are coming at our idealization in really different ways. But under whatever messed up stuff we're pushing on people, what we're ultimately trying to bring to the world is a vision that we see Mm -hmm. that feels right. Mm -hmm. And that helps me sometimes, especially with sevens, because they can, you know, they can feel so aggressive in their enacting of that vision. And when I realize that they really believe in their heart that that vision is, they really believe that's going to make everything good for everybody Mm -hmm. and they want that. And so I think that's true for ones too. I think you... I think it's important to know that under the judgment is this great love for a world that you see that is is good and is perfect. Quotation marks perfect. Um, and there's kind of a willingness to go after that. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Yes, and I would also say, well, it's strange being lumped in with fours and sevens as one at all for any reason. I know, I know. Because I do not relate to fours and sevens as far as their lens of the world, like pretty much at all. Right, right. Um, But also I would say like... We're just irresponsible. (laughs) (laughs) But really, but it helped me have a lot of fun Mm -hmm. in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, Because one of my best friends is a seven Mm -hmm. and my wife is a four, Mm -hmm. so... I've had some good times. Yeah. They are definitely a good time. But I also, like, you're sitting there saying that, but then I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't fucking matter because intentions sometimes don't matter. Right. So. Which is an important thing for you as the one to say. I mean, it's important for all of us. I have to say that because because my mind automatically is like, yeah, I mean, I can have this ideal view of, like, how I want things to be and goodness and what I'm going to do to make that happen and my intentions are good. My intentions are mm-hmm. pretty much always good. Yeah. Like I I'm, And I kind of actually think a 7s are too. But does but, that but does that matter? Yeah, no, I don't think it does actually. I think it matters because how it, yeah, I think you're right. I think I mean, we could have a really big conversation about intentions. Intentions, you know, yes. I mean, and on all fronts, like right. politically, right. And, you know, racially. And, right. Yes. All of that. All of that. Um, so that's a good point. I I think that's, that's a good point. Because um, a lot of times how ones get to the goodness it can be hurtful yeah. to people. Mm-hmm. But if my goal is goodness, but I'm hurting people that I care about along the way because of my tone or my like rigidness or my strictness about mm-hmm. how to get there and mm-hmm. why can't you understand what I'm trying to say to you? Why don't you remember what I'm saying? Like that's hurtful. Yeah. Even though my intentions are good. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know that my intentions being good matter in that situation. Right. And that's just me and sitting in judgment of myself, of course. Right, right. No, yeah, moment, yeah, yeah. No, but I do, I do think that yes, that's a good point, and and it's, and it's also helpful for me to know that that's where one is coming from. You know that they're reformers, that they see a vision that sometimes we can't see. And I have to say, like when I was in Brazil, I had a vision of my mother like that as a seven. Like I had a vision that she could see 
this mystical vision that I was not privy to. Mm-hmm. And it's, I felt somehow connected to, uh, it was like the visions that were coming to me and my body were connected to her, her chemotherapy. And it was like linking those two processes and saying, Oof. yeah. And it was like, you, you can't, you don't understand her mysticism. And so, so you don't, you can't judge it. And um, I think that, uh, so I guess all that to say, and I don't excuse my own ways of getting to my, uh, my ideal, which is I think sometimes more self-serving than, than ones and sevens. I think if I'm honest, my, the idealizing that I'm doing is so that I will feel special and so that the world around me will look special and feel mm-hmm. special so that I feel safe and special, which is mm-hmm. not nearly as world reforming as a one or a seven. It's much more, you know, so all that to say that it gives me some, it gives me some compassion and grace for ones and sevens. But that's also, I think, where you're able, where you start to sit in judgment of others is because you're wanting to feel special, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So if you're feeling like someone else is special, you may try to find a reason to like unspecialize, unspecialize them. them. I love to unspecialize people. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm trying, I'm catching myself though. I'm but trying. that's what I'm saying. Like mm-hmm. all along in that process, your intentions are good. Like you're not a malicious person, but I don't know that. That's still harmful behavior. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, do you feel like you catch your... Like, what would be the equivalent if I'm unspecializing or you... I guess just the critical... Critical. The critical. critical. Like, so do you catch yourself doing it and say... uh, I'm not quite to the point where I'm able to, like, catch myself as often as I would like. My apology is very quick. Hmm. So I'm just to the point where I'm critical and then I'm... oh, And then I immediately take full ownership over Mm -hmm. the critique and think that was totally unnecessary. You're just chilling there, sitting in your chair, not doing anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm over here being critical of that you, you know, folded my pants wrong again. You know? Or that you're sitting in that chair. No, I, 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 mean, I would, my, my wife. Just that you're sitting. I want like, her. stop to, sitting. I want her to sit more oh, than she does. Because she is just like yeah. a, you know. Yeah. She's just like Tasmanian devil. devil all over the place. Do, 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 do. I mean, I'm a doer, but she's got me beat. Wow, and she's a four. Yeah, I mean, she's always in something. But it's 17 different things. I'm mm-hmm. a hyper-focuser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, I don't, we didn't get into it, but in this chapter she does talk about how ones can hyper-focus to the detriment of oh, yeah. other things that can get really sloppy. So you yes. can, which is... Probably for an outsider looking at a one, letting things, parts of their life get really sloppy, that can be confusing. Yes. Yeah. And compounding. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it just makes it, it makes it. Um, so part of the idealizing is like noticing discrepancies, which we talked about um, at our salon, that because you see the vision, so you notice when, there's a discrepancy in how someone's enacting the, the sentences. There's a constant awareness of a discrepancy between the way something really is and the way it should be. Mm-hmm. They live with a kind of desperate drive to realign ordinary reality mm-hmm. with perfection. Or it is either perfect or it has a fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think that's a, a good way to talk about chaining. You know how we talk about chainings, one, twos, and sixes? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a good way to talk about it. It's either perfect or it has a fatal fall. So if you're in the middle of a project and one part of that project is mm-hmm. not good, boom, I'm going to start all the way over and do the whole thing because if there's a little flaw here, the whole project is uh-huh. flawed. Yes. Yeah. I've done that. I've taken an entire patio landing out <laughs> and started over before. Yeah. Which cost me two days of labor mm-hmm. because of one flaw that was irreparable unless I started over, which yeah. would have been fine and yeah. no one would have ever noticed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I knew it was there, and so it was significant to, to me as a mason. Yeah. So I started over. Yeah. Wow. And now it's perfect. And now it's perfect. <laughs> well, see, that's good. I think it's good that you can say it's now it's perfect. Because another thing that ones can do is move the bar. So you start all over. You do the whole thing again. It's good. And then you find some other aspect of that project that didn't... Quite no, it meet became your standard. Out, it, doing it a second time made it made, made it, it even better than the original design that I had for it. But do you ever notice yourself like um, having a goal, and then when you meet the goal, your idea of oh, perfection moves out yes. in a way, or you set a calendar for the day? I'm going to get all this done, and then you and then I'll I'm going to go on a date with Tara Rose, and then you get all that done, and you feel like, oh, I got it all done, so let me do something else? I mean, I I never reach my bar. Like, yeah. I always move it. Yeah. Always, yes. That's true. I mean, that's, um, that's got to be exhausting. Mean, exa- I'm exhausted. Gotta, yeah, I mean, so. I'm in general, exhausted. So ha- can you catch yourself <laughs> in that and go, okay, wait, wait. It's, it's good I am, enough. I, or no, I'm going to hold am. my feet to the fire and go on the date or go. I am catching myself more and more, and and what's allowing me to catch myself more and more is that when I just allow myself to just let go and go on the date with Tara Rose and not do something else, like the world doesn't collapse and I'm fine. Mm -hmm. So now that I'm getting more evidence that I'm going to be okay, because what we haven't really discussed is like the constant anxiety that a one is under. Like it's, it's, it's a very anxious world. Yeah. Even yeah. though we we appear to be chill people, mm-hmm. we're anxious. Yeah. No, I can tell. I can tell it's just the anxiety is... Most people's anxiety seems dramatic and a little chaotic, and a one keeps it tight. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like... Mm-hmm. It has a different quality to it. And one's anxiety does... It almost feels... I don't know. It has. It's like not icy, but it's it's tight. It's it's you know it's something. You can, it's different. You can feel it humming just under our skin at all I, times. I think so. Yeah. 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 Um, and so the virtue of a one is serenity, which you know I guess is is uh, talk about ideals. I think that's it, it's kind of um, a philosophical concept that that's your virtue because. My, my guess is your moments of feeling true serenity are pretty brief and far brief. between. Mm-hmm. But um, she says, Helen says that it's from like negative emotions 
uh, accepting those and uh, uh, judging thoughts are an excellent indication that some truthful impulse is being blocked out of awareness. Um, So her way of talking about it is that you're just all the, as you're, you know, looking at your thoughts and saying that's a good thought, bad thought, all these different thoughts, that you're just allowing the things that don't feel good to just be, to observe them and let them come up, let the anger come up, let the anxiety come up, let the negative thoughts come up and accepting those and like giving them space and room and voice. And she seems to think that serenity comes from that. I don't, I've never talked to one about that. I don't have anything, I don't have any wisdom or anything to say about that. I mean, it it sounds like you're speaking a foreign language to me right now. Really? Well, just just, like talking about observing the anger or observing the feeling or whatever. Like I, (laughs) that's so out there conceptual to me. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Yeah. Or how to practice that. Serenity is really the automatic side effect of allowing all feeling impulses into awareness without deflecting the unacceptable ones. Yeah, I think... That's integration. That's integration. I think, you know, um, I'm excited to be friends with you. And I think that's like something we should like think about together. Because I don't know if... Like, I mean, I would love to, I just don't, I don't even know how to, you know, talk on this podcast about what that is for one, because I don't. Serenity? Yeah, serenity and and having aware awareness of negative emotions without deflecting them. I mean, obviously there's meditation. Suzanne talks about ones liking to use beads uh, or some kind of like bodily form of where your body is active while you're meditating to get to get your critic to stand down. And I'm guessing that maybe the more that ha- can happen, like the more there's allowing of the negative feelings. But this would have to be like a lifelong journey for a one, I think. Right. An active, an active decision every single day. Yes. I think it would have to be a conscious decision every day. Yes. And I do think that's, I do think while in some ways I think one's road might be a a particularly tough one, I think every number, there's this thing, this path to virtue, whatever each virtue is for each number is probably something that is something we have to wake up every day and say, here's my... Here's the path, which is why, you know, which is why this is a good roadmap because you can keep just, if you just keep a couple of things in your pocket that you're, like for me, that I'm bringing up doing and boundarying feeling and then I'm, my virtue of, what is it? I don't even know. Equanimity, I think. I don't know what it is. That that's what I'm supposed to be working on. Like, that's kind of all, all of us need to know or focus on. Yeah, but I feel like, you know, there. I, th- I think in all the numbers, there's a commonality. But like, we can all relate to each other for sure. For like, sure. there's more similarities. I think between all of us, which is also helpful. Yeah, yeah. Especially because I think ones do feel lonely mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. 
to know that other people are struggling with the same things and may just look different and manifest different, but it's the same. It's kind of the same. Because shame is shame. Shame is shame. Feeling unworthy is feeling unworthy. Yeah, and that may manifest differently, but it's the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you so much for coming. I know it's not easy, so I appreciate it. It's an honor to me. Well, thank you for trusting me mm-hmm. to do this with you sure. on your first lone podcaster podcast journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that I was also able to create a safe space for you. Absolutely, absolutely. Because we were both vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna sleep for like hours after this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you were in the